Well, good morning, everyone. If you'd open to um, Luke 19. Happy Triumphal Entry Sunday. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, thus shall you speak, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said, I tell you, if these became silent, the very stones will cry out. When he approached the city, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it never returns void, but it accomplishes that for which you sent it. And we ask that you would send forth your word now through me and through other preachers throughout this city and our state and the nation. And Lord, uh, it would rise before you as a fragrant offering and you would do as you will through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that we might be able to focus this morning on your word, Lord, that all distractions could be set aside, that we could look anew with fresh eyes and fresh revelation at this record of this event in history. It's not a story. It's an event in history. We thank you, Father, and just bless you and praise you. Thank you for our church. Thank you for sustaining us through these days and giving us more fire and more fervency, more passion for you. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. As the elders were praying this morning about the service, it just came to me that, you know, when you prepare to preach, I'd like 
you to imagine for a minute, uh, this is not part of the sermon, but I would like you just to imagine for a minute that you have been asked to preach next Sunday morning, and um, kind of the fear and the trembling and the uh, nervousness that would come upon you because it's not just it's not just nervousness about how you do, but it's am I speaking for God? And you realize you're involved in a very sacred process, and so you go to your knees and you, you cry out to God, "Oh God, you know, help me!" And uh, you get stripped down. You know, you get you you pretty quickly realize that it's not about you, or it's not about um, just that without the Lord you are nothing. And um, so, but there that passage that I recited in prayer about the word of the Lord doesn't return to you or doesn't return void is my greatest comfort. Amen? Amen. That, you know, regardless of what I do, right or wrong or good or bad, his word will change us. And I just know that's your heart too and appreciate you so much for that. This morning we, we mark the beginning of Holy Week, don't we? Sometimes called Passion, the Passion Week. And uh, it's a week where we want to cocoon ourselves in, as it were. We want to marvel and uh, drink deeply of this last week of Christ's life. Uh, I believe the serious Christian wants to emerge from this week more holy and more sober and more um, having a better grasp than ever before of what our Lord went through um, this last week of his, his earthly life. Is that your hope this morning? Is that, are you a serious Christian this morning and want to um, take the time that it might take this week to um, enter into that uh, determination to uh, grasp with greater revelation and greater insight what Christ went through. It's so easy to let the demands of this life uh, just kind of sweep us along, isn't it? One little track said, the tyranny of the urgent, to make this week just like other weeks. But I want to exhort you here in the beginning to make a decision right now that I'm going to spend more time in the Word this week. I'm going to spend more time in prayer. I'm going to do my very best to go to those services Thursday and Friday night and, and drink deeply of this holy week that's before us. Will you do that? Will you do that? Amen. Well, the account of the triumphal entry is in all four Gospels, isn't it? It's in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 10, Luke 19, 28 through 44, that's the one we just read, and John 12, 12 through 19. It's a scene of triumph. It's a scene of festivity. It's a scene of confusion, of wildly swinging emotions and conflicting expectations. It's almost, um, as I read it over and over and over this week, 
it became almost a surreal event in my mind. The disciples were certainly in confusion. Look back in in your scriptures at Luke 18, starting in verse 31. Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Now pay special attention to verse 34. And they understood none of these things. <laughs> this saying was hidden from them. They did not comprehend the things that were said. The disciples were stunned by this statement. It was just too much for them to accept. The confusion in their minds probably was that uh, this was the Messiah. This was the one who would come and establish the throne of Israel. Jesus clearly was the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was supposed to reign forever. Jesus obviously was going to have to be crowned king any day now. He had even said that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones. Yet he kept talking about dying and suffering. How can this be? It just didn't compute. So first, I want you to note that the disciples themselves were confused about what was going on. And then the crowd, the larger crowd, was really a mixed bag, weren't they? You had those who had seen miracles um, and considered Jesus a prophet. For example, certainly there were those present when he raised Lazarus. Certainly some of those people were present at the Passover. Certainly there were eyewitnesses of him casting out demons in the three years of his ministry. Certainly there were some present who had, or some who had been present at the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Certainly there were some who had been witnesses to his healing miracles and others who had heard of them. A third group were those who had a party spirit. You know this kind of person, you know, somebody who likes to let the emotion of the moment carry them or the emotion of the multitude carry them wherever it will. I remember uh, when Esther was in high school, we, after much duress, Laura and I agreed that we would let Esther have a party at our house. Uh, but we knew how parties went in Jenks, Oklahoma. And so we said, uh, honey, you can have a party, but we want you to have an invitation list and try to limit it to those people. So that was hard for her, but she did it. And so the night came, and the party, party goers arrive, and pretty soon there's people and cars in our driveway. We don't know who these people are. There's beer bottles on the front lawn. There's fights breaking out. And there are people actually dancing on my pool table. We shut that down. These with a party spirit. There were those types of people there, carried along uh, by the emotion of the moment. There were also certainly those with a personal agenda. 
What can I get from this miracle worker? Maybe Jesus will do something for me. I, I have to confess, I've been in that boat before. I remember we had a speaker here years ago who was touching people and they were being slain in the spirit and falling out and I went forward just kind of, I'd like to see what that's all about. You know, there, my motives were very impure and of course God rewarded me by not having him pray for me. So there were those with a personal agenda. There were those with military and political expectations, weren't there? The zealots, what did they want? This might be the Messiah, but who really cares? It's an opportunity for the Roman oppressors to be cast off and the throne of David established. There were the intellectually convinced, but those who were afraid to give their lives to Christ. Let's look at John 12, 42 through 43. John 12, 42 and 43. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. These were detached spectators, if you will, who knew he was the Christ, but wouldn't surrender to his lordship. Then you had the infuriated religious elite. You remember them, the Pharisees who wanted to snuff him out and snuff him out now. What did they say to his disciples in verse 39? Make them be quiet. That's when Jesus said, if, if I do, even the stones will cry out in praise to me. Later in Luke 22, we read this in chapter, in verses 2 through 6. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. So we have those who were witnesses to, a miracles, to miracles and believed he was a prophet. We have the disciples who are confused about what's happening. We have those with a party spirit. We have those with personal agendas. We have military and political folks who want something to happen. We have the infuriated religious elite. But we also had those who knew who he really was. Lazarus was there. He had seen the other side, hadn't he? And he knew that Jesus was the Christ. Mary and Martha were there when Lazarus' body lay in the tomb before Jesus brought him forth from the grave. Do you remember what Martha said? She said, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Mary Magdalene was there too, wasn't she? You remember her story. Seven demons had come out of her. She knew the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The man born blind was there. Jerusalem was his home. In his final conversation with Jesus, the man had said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. What about Jesus himself? I think a case could be made that Jesus' emotions seem to be 
all over the map as well. Let's look at um, Mark 10, verse 32, and we'll see a place where Jesus is walking by himself and the disciples are even afraid to be with him. Mark 10, verse 32. This is a couple days before the triumphal entry. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. It's as if he was brooding. His demeanor was stern. He was lost in thought. Then in verse 39 of the actual entry into Jerusalem, we read, we read that he said, if, you tell, if I tell these to stop, even the stones will cry out. That feels to me like a statement of elation, that Jesus is excited at that moment, that even though the people may not completely know what they're saying, he's excited that praises are going forth. Hosanna, save us. He's getting some validation and some victory and a sense of triumph. But then one verse later, in verses 40 and 41, what do we read? That when he approached the city, he saw the city and what? He wept over it. So we see this intense sobriety two days before. And then elation, what appears to be elation in verse 39 and then in verse 40 and 41, deep weeping. So, I've tried to paint the picture for you as accurately as I can, and now what I'd like to do is try to ask the question, what were the purposes of God for this event? Um, this story or, or account of history can be so routine to us that we, we don't take in uh, the purposes of God. Surely this was not a random, uh, just, just a random event in the life of Christ. Amen? Let's take, take a look at three purposes together. The first was to fulfill prophecy. To fulfill prophecy. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is an Old Testament book that was, is filled with prophecies concerning Jesus being the Messiah. And in chapter 9, verse 9, we, re, we read this that describes the triumphal entry. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Isn't that a beautiful uh, phrase? That he is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a reality that's often lost on us as Western Christians is that Jesus, at a most basic level here, was fulfilling prophecy. Let me read to you um, some prophecies, because throughout his ministry, 
Jesus was very aware he was fulfilling prophecy, wasn't he? And he wanted his hearers to know it as proof of his messiahship. Here are a few examples. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness of me. In Luke 4, and he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then one last one, Luke 22, For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, that I will be numbered with transgressors. My uh, second daughter, Hannah, went to Westmont College in California. It's a fine uh, Christian school there. And uh, there is a professor there, Professor Emeritus of Science, named Peter Stoner. He wrote a book called Science Speaks. And in that book, he describes researching the probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies that were um, prophesied about Christ. Let me, before I get into this, let me read the prophecies that he uh, used in his uh, analysis. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was to be preceded by a messenger. The Messiah was to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The Messiah was to be betrayed by a friend who ate with him. The Messiah was to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's in Zechariah 11, verse 12. The money was to be thrown into God's house and used for a potter's field. The Messiah was to stand silent before his accusers. And the Messiah was to die by crucifixion. Now, all these prophecies occurred at least 250 years and most likely, more likely, at least 450 years before Christ was born. So, so Professor Stoner was asking the question, what are, is the statistical probability that these eight prophecies could have been fulfilled in one person? And um, he came up with the number 10 to the 17th power. Now, he submitted his calculations to the American Scientific Affiliation for verification where both the Committee of Review and the Executive Council found them, quote, dependable and accurate in regards to the scientific material presented. So an independent body um, verified his statistics and his mathematics. And uh, so then he went on to try to give us an idea of what 10 to the 17th power would look like. And he said, here's the way to picture it. You may have heard this illustration. Um, cover the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. Then uh, mark one of those silver dollars in some way. Then stir them all up and then blindfold someone. Have them wander around as far as they like in the state of Texas 
and pick up that one marked silver dollar. That's 10 to the 17th power. Uh, that's based on eight prophecies. You know how many major prophecies there are of, of Christ being the Messiah. These are major prophecies. There's 61. Um, Stoner went on to at least say, okay, what about 48? He chose the number 48 of the major prophecies, and that comes out to 10 to the 157th power. He went on to explain what that would be like. I couldn't follow it, uh, honestly. So Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, wasn't he? He was consciously, I think very consciously, as he entered Jerusalem that day, fulfilling prophecy to set up the second purpose of God, and that was to proclaim his lordship. To proclaim his lordship. To declare publicly and powerfully to all heaven and earth that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the King, he is God, and he is the Lord. Zechariah 9.9, we read, it says what? Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. I want to remind you that for most of Christ's ministry, he was telling people to be quiet when they realized who he was. One evidence of that is in um, Matthew 16, verse 20. Matthew 16, verse 20. This is where uh, he asked his disciples the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And in verse um, 20, of Matthew 16, it says, Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. But here on the day of the triumphal entry, he is making it known that he is the Lord. God is throwing the curtain back and displaying for all to see who Jesus Christ really is. Later at his trial, we read in in Matthew 26, the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what did Jesus say in that moment? He said, you have said it yourself. Luke reports that Jesus said actually, yes, I am. Yes, I am. It was a bold declaration of his lordship. Also, a little bit about the nature of his kingdom was exposed by him riding in on a donkey. Military leaders rode in on horses, right? See it in movies all the time, in movies about Rome, the conquest, the, you know, Caesar or whoever rides in through the through the gates on a horse. Jesus rode in on a donkey. Humble, a symbol. Donkeys were a symbol of peace. 
So in this chaotic event of the triumphal entry, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, number one. Number two, he was declaring his lordship. But there's a third purpose that we we can't miss, and that is that he was fulfilling his mission. He was going to the cross, wasn't he? He was going to the cross. Listen to this, what his mission was. It was to suffer and be mistreated. It was to stand trial as king of the Jews. It was to be scourged and nailed to the cross. It was to be crucified, taking on the sins of the world, yours and mine. It was to finish his work. It was to descend into hell. It was to break the power of sin and the law. It was to overcome the world. It was to make many resurrection appearances. It was to ascend on high. It was to lead captive a host of captives to be lifted up into heaven, to send the promised Holy Spirit, to give gifts to men, and to sit down at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says he set his face like flint for Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him to win salvation for our souls and to complete the will of his Father. Can you say with me, hallelujah? Hallelujah. Can we say Hosanna? Can we say blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord? Hallelujah. He was fulfilling prophecy that day. He was proclaiming his lordship that day. And he was fulfilling his mission. Friends, God has gone all the way for us. He's gone all the way. How many want to go all the way for him? I want to go all the way for him. Hallelujah. With all that's before us, don't you want to live in celebration and triumph knowing that God is for us who can stand against us? We could stop right here. Some of you may want me to stop right here. But I've got just a little bit more. I want to make three applications from this event. First of all, let's look back at our text, Luke 19, 41 through 44. This is toward the end of the record, and it's where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, Jesus wept. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He wept and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We need to be sure that we recognize the day of our visitation. The day that Jesus Christ confronts us with who he is. Have you believed in the only Son of God? Have you driven your stake in the ground in such a way that it cannot be removed? 
you believe in Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, At the acceptable time I listened to you. This is God talking. And on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Oh, that one person would decide today to surrender to Jesus Christ. Oh, that a young boy or girl couldn't remain in their seats, but they would have to stand up before this body and declare, Jesus is my Lord. Oh, that an old person would say, I've lived my life for myself up until now, but from this day forth, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. Oh, that someone would make a triumphal entry into the kingdom of God this morning. I believe it's happening. I believe it's happening here. It's happening in our city. It's happening in our state. It's happening across our land. Let's pray that it is so. So first, we need to recognize the day of our visitation. Obviously, second, we need to become lifelong, steady disciples of Jesus Christ. This is a, this, the record of this event begs us to become lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ because we don't want to be one of those fickle members of the, of, the, of the multitude who on Monday is yelling, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, and on Thursday or Friday is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. People like these are described in the parable of the sower. They have no firm root in themselves. Jesus said, no depth of soil. When the sun comes, what? They wither. They wither away. God forbid that we would be like that. Instead, I like Isaiah 50, verse 4, to describe us. The Lord God has given us the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. I hope you wake up in the morning listening for the Lord's voice. I hope you go through the day doing your best to listen for the Lord's voice. And I hope when you lie down at night, you take a moment to just try to listen for the Lord's voice because you've got this. You've got this concept and this reality that you're not just a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are a lifelong learner. You are under the hand of a master. And not just any master, but the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to recognize the day of our visitation. We need to become a lifelong, steady disciple. And finally, I think the most memorable and captivating verse in this story is verse 39, where the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to quiet them down. And Jesus says, if I tell these to be silent, even the stones will cry out in praise to me. So application number three is 
let us live always then for the praise of his glory. Amen? Make his praise glorious, as Joel read at the beginning of the service. Let's live in celebration. Let's live in triumph. Let's live both in this life and as we enter the next with praise and glory on our lips for our great God and Christ. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and be glad. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so. I'm going to ask Hallett to come and lead us in a final song. But as he's coming, let me just ask you to set aside some extra time this week to walk through the passion of our Lord with him. You may want to fast and pray one or more days this week to aid focusing on him. Uh, Don't let the tyranny of the urgent drive you away from this special week or erode your determination. Remember the Holy Week services, Thursday and Friday. Make them, if at all possible. And um, one last exhortation. Let's take extra time to read through the final week of Christ's life in the Gospel stories. How many are willing to, to do these things and want to do these things? Just spend some extra time walking with Christ through the last week of his life. Hallett, would you come? Let's stand again. Jesus, we celebrate your victory. Jesus, we celebrate your victory. Jesus, we revel in your love. Jesus, we rejoice you set us free. Jesus, your death has brought us life. It was for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. No longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery so we're rejoicing in God's victory our hearts responding to his love Jesus we celebrate your victory Jesus we revel in your love We rejoice you set us free Jesus, your breath has brought us life His Spirit, His Spirit in us Releases us from fear And the way to Him is open With boldness we draw near And in His presence Our problems disappear, our hearts responding to His love. Jesus, we celebrate your victory. Jesus, we love.
rejoice, you set us free. Jesus, your death has, Jesus, Jesus, your death has, Jesus, Jesus, your death has brought us life. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord.